Mark's gospel has presented much evidence supporting the divine authority of Jesus, the Son of God. He has been proclaimed by John the Baptist as the one who is mightier than I. He has been twice approved by the voice of God the Father from heaven. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The people have been amazed by his authoritative uh, preaching, healing, casting out of demons, and miracles. The disciples have confessed him as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And as he approached Jerusalem for the last time, he's proclaimed the Son of David, the King of Israel. But there's a group who has refused to believe in him, who has opposed him and objected to his ministry. Jesus has now entered their territory and challenged them through his royal procession to Jerusalem and his upheaval of business as usual in the temple. These actions forced the religious rulers to act and bring to the fore the source of his authority. Is it of men or is it of God? And the rulers and people of the city, well, they have to decide the old regime must give way to the new and be abolished. Now, the issue of authority is a modern-day problem as well. Legitimate authority is being challenged in our country in many ways, such as BLM and Antifa movements, defunding the police, the LGBTQ plus agenda, the rewriting of our history. Uh, moral and spiritual values with long standing are being rejected, trampled upon, and replaced in our government and society. And all this is really an issue of authority. That issue is also personal to us. Who or what do you consider an authority in your life? Does uh, anyone have the right to tell you what to do, to teach you, or to guide you in life? Do parents have authority over their children? Do officers of the law have authority in society? Does Christ have authority over his church? So if Jesus is who he says he is, if he's the son of God who came from heaven to give his life for you on the cross, if he paid the penalty of your sin and mine, does he not have the right and the authority to be your savior and Lord of your life? But you have to come to him in humility, confessing your sin, and receiving him as your Savior. And just as those who opposed Jesus in his day had a choice to believe in him or not, so we have that choice today. We have to decide whether or not we will submit to his authority. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning <clears throat> your blessing on your word. We're thankful, Lord, that uh, we have a God who cares for us, who proved that when he sent Jesus to die on the cross. Now, Lord, it's just logical for us to assume we need to be under your authority. You have a, a sovereign power over the universe, and you have authority over those who turn to you for salvation. So, Lord, help us not to be like the unbelieving crowd who uh, seek to be their own authority or uh, others who seek to have authority 
uh, over uh, their constituents, that they might rule them. Lord, help us always to be under your authority and your rule. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, the first thing I want you to see here in chapter 11 of Mark's gospel is this, this confrontation over Christ's authority. And we have a group of religious leaders coming to Jesus, and uh, they make a demand of him. Now, let's just kind of back up a little bit and get the circumstances here. This is the third day that Jesus and his disciples enter the city of Jerusalem. Along the way, you'll remember, they stopped by that withered uh, fig tree, and he encouraged them from that to have faith in God. And when they pray, they will have his power to do amazing things if they believe that they have the things that they pray for. They're going to have his authority behind them. Now, they come into the temple from that uh, point, and Jesus is walking there in the temple area. And as he's walking around, these men approach him. They are an official delegation from the Sanhedrin, uh, chief priests, experts in the law, and elders. And these are the ruling positions that comprise this Jewish high court, if you will. They do have authority uh, among the people to instruct them in the law of God, to lead them in the worship of God, and also to make civil and religious judgments over uh, matters. But they've long been failing in their responsibility to lead the people righteously as God would have them do. They love their power, they love their authority, and they love the benefits that were derived from these high positions. They believe they were a special elite class, and they love to exercise their authority over others. Does that remind you of anybody today? We've got a lot of folks like that in government, don't we? They're not at all religious. Most of them don't claim to have anything to do with religion, but they think they're an elite class that can tell everybody else how they ought to live and, and uh, things of this nature. Now, as I mentioned, this group of people, these leaders, they do have a legitimate right to question someone, to examine their teachings and their beliefs and their actions, who claims to be a teacher in Israel. That was part of their responsibility. They want, uh, they're supposed to keep the true worship of God, uh, and, and to, uh, deny and reject people who may not be teaching that. But their, their opposition has been hyper, uh, hypocritical and unfounded when it comes to Jesus. And they are afraid of him because he reveals their false traditions and their hypocrisy. Now, the questions that they ask are more of a demand than a true inquiry. Uh, when, they, when they come to the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, they ask him about this issue of authority. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, obviously, they're probably referring to the things he just did the, the day before and coming into this, uh, the temple and disrupting things and chasing people out of the temple and how dare you do this kind of thing. 
what authority do you have to do this kind of thing in our temple? Now, uh, John in his gospel gives us a little background information about this group of people and what they're trying to do and what they will eventually succeed at in this uh, week of feasting. So I want you to turn to John chapter 11 just for a moment. And I'm going to read a few verses here to you. I'm going to begin reading in verse 47, John 11. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. So you see what their concern was. It wasn't really for the people. It's for our place in our nation. And we've got this cheap place. We derive a lot of good stuff from it. We want to keep that going, so we've got to get rid of this fellow. Now, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority. Here's that issue of authority again. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, he was totally mixed up uh, about this. God ordained it. He's unaware of it. And God's going to use his unbelief to bring it about. And he goes on to say, um, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. So even before this happened, they had already come together as a council and they began figuring out a way they can get rid of Jesus. And now Jesus has come to their city and now they're going to try to put together this plot to get rid of him. So uh, this has been in the making uh, perhaps for six months up to a year because this took place right after the healing or actually the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. So they've got to have some kind of an excuse. They've got to have some kind of way of charging him so that he can come before the council, he can be judged, and then give it over to the Roman authorities who had the right to put him to death. Now, they had not authorized Jesus to do what he did the previous day, so now they're trying to use that against him. Uh, these men could not decide, uh, they could not uh, deny that Jesus was authoritative in what he did, but they could also use this against him if they could get him to admit the source of his authority. If he said, well, it's from God, then they would accuse him of blasphemy. If he said it was from man, well, then this was not condoned by them, the religious leaders, and therefore he's illegitimate, and hopefully nobody will listen to what he has to say. But all the while, they are jealous to maintain their own authority over the people and all the benefits they derive both from Israel and from Rome for being in that position. 
So everything is coming to them. They want to maintain that status, that authority they have over the people. Now, as, the, as this goes on, Jesus then counters their demand with another question in verse 29. And the Lord used an acceptable means of Jewish debate. And perhaps you've, you've heard this before, but answering a question with another question. He's not about to give them a direct answer about his authority yet and play into their game, into their, in their hands. So if they would honestly answer his question, then he will answer their question because the two things are really joined together. So in verse uh, 29, Jesus uh, says, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Now you answer me. Now, you know there's a line of continuity between these two ministries. John was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. John preached the baptism of repentance and preparation for the appearance of the Lord Jesus the one that he said is greater than I. And that's how he identified Jesus as that coming one. <clears throat> now the people, they believed John was a genuine prophet. I mean, they came to him by uh, the score to be baptized in preparation for the coming of Messiah and, and confessing their sins. So if the rulers would accept John's authority, they would necessarily be obliged to accept Christ's authority because it's from the same place. And the people believe John's authority as a prophet must come from God, must come from heaven. So you can imagine this creates quite a dilemma in the minds of the rulers as they think about how uh, to answer this question of Jesus. They reasoned among themselves. They're going back and forth. This is a conundrum. This is an enigma. This is a problem for them because uh, it's going to put them on the spot as to what they believe as the religious uh, leaders and rulers of the people, they should come down with a proper uh, uh, attitude toward this whole situation. So as they're reasoning with each other, going back and forth, if they said Jesus' authority was from heaven, then he's going to ask them, well, why, why didn't you, or, or John's authority from heaven, why didn't you believe him then? Because it's pretty clear they, they didn't. Uh, they didn't really try to stop him from doing what he was doing, but neither did they believe in him. Uh, and again, if they believed in John, they would have no reason not to believe in Jesus. So their refusal to believe is really the, uh, the crux of this whole issue, this whole problem. If they said, from men, well, what's going to happen then? They feared the people because the people believed that Jesus, or rather John, was a prophet indeed. Uh, so they're, they're really in a bad situation here, in a dilemma. It's interesting that Luke's gospel adds that they said they were afraid that people would stone them if they said John's ministry was from uh, men. So they didn't want a rebellion on their hands. They certainly didn't want to get stoned. 
So they take the easy way out and say, well, we don't know. But what does that do? What does that say? It really further condemns their hypocrisy. Here they are. They're the ones who are supposed to decide these issues. They're supposed to decide if a prophet is really a prophet of God or he's a false prophet. They have the authority to make these decisions. So their unbelief has created an untenable position for them. So they have proved that they're unworthy of the authority they claim to have to decide spiritual matters. And really the answer to the Lord's question is pretty obvious if you think about it. Put two two together, you put the facts together presented by Mark, you would know that Christ's authority didn't come from men, it came from, uh, from heaven, from God. The disciples knew this as well as the, the, the other followers. So it all boils down to your believing it or not. You're accepting it as truth as it's presented to you right before your eyes or you're rejecting it and that's what they're actually doing here. And the issue is the same today. If you refuse to believe that Jesus is the person portrayed in the Gospels, then you're denying the truth of God's word, and you believe his authority was either from himself or from men, or it's historical fantasy, but it's not from God. So you're in the same position uh, as those men were. It's an issue of your belief, of your faith, of your trust. So if you do not believe what's revealed about Jesus, you deny the authority of God's word and you can't be saved. So that leads us then to the next paragraph where we have this uh, parable that describes the historical problem of Israel's rulers and their failure to submit to the authority of God. So in verses 1 through 12, chapter 12, we have a revelation and condemnation of those who reject Christ's authority going back through history. You reject the Old Testament history of God trying to reach people. You do the same in the New Testament as we come into the age of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at this. In verses 1 through 8, we, we have a, an allegory, uh, a parable. And the Lord is reverting again to this parabolic type of teaching where uh, the methodology was to prevent those who would not believe from understanding the truth, while those who did believe would comprehend it or they would come to him and they would ask more explanation. And because of that, he would explain it to them. Now, in this case, we get to the end of it. The leaders do get the message, but again, they're going to have none of it. So let's take a look here at this parable of a vineyard and the wicked people who are in control of that vineyard. Now, in the Old Testament, the symbol of a vineyard was often used for Israel. And we're drawing really a parable from the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. So turn back there to chapter 5 so you can see this and uh, the similarity of the teaching. And this would have been something that would have come to the minds of of the people gathered there. If there were uh, folks watching this take place 
and uh, these religious rulers who knew the Old Testament law upside down and backwards, they would also be familiar with this. But in uh, Isaiah 5, the Lord is, is giving this um, uh, allegory of a vineyard, and he's using it to describe the nation of Israel in Isaiah's time. Now let me sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Who do you think that is? Well, that's God. He dug it up. He cleared out its stones. He planted it with a choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. So that's God bringing forth his people Israel in Old Testament times, expecting them to be a people who loved him, obeyed him, worshipped him, and were witnesses to the people of the nations of that time. He wanted them to bring forth good fruit, good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So it was an unfruitful nation. Now Jesus is not focusing on the vineyard, the nation, the people He's focusing on the vine dressers, the ones who are supposed to be uh, bringing uh, the people to the place where they could produce fruit. So this is the issue we find here. So he's using a, uh, this, this familiar imagery. A man planted a vineyard. He set a hedge around it to protect it. He dug a place for the wine vat where you collected the, the fruit of the vine. And he builds a tower, which is also uh, to uh, uh, see if anybody would come and try to steal something or animals that would come and and, uh, take the fruit of the vineyard. And then he leased it to vine dressers. He put it into somebody else's charge under their authority, and they were supposed to take care of it. And he went into a far country. So who do you think the Lord is alluding to here? Who's the man? Well, the man's God. God planted the vineyard here, and uh, he did everything he could to make it productive, and then he gives the authority of taking care of it to these vine dressers who are the religious leaders, the religious rulers of the day. Now, at vintage time, in other words, uh, this would have, historically, this would have taken three or four years. But it's the time for the grapes to uh, bear fruit. And so he sends a servant to the vine dressers because he will get a portion of the, the produce as the owner, the master, the one who brought it into being. And this is something that would have been common in that day. As a matter of fact, These uh, religious rulers were were quite wealthy and they may have had a vineyard such as this and lent it out to vine dressers and every year they come and get get what they want and, and the vine dressers get the rest. So that's the image here. They would have been again very familiar with this idea. And this is what we would expect. Okay, you get paid. Uh, You get so much and I get so much because I am the owner and you're the vine dressers. So you expect to get some fruit from this. But what happens? Something that we don't expect. He sends a servant that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. 
And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's not something we expect is going to take place here. So what's he do? Well, he sends some more people. And the same thing happens over and over and over again. But they even get more violent and they actually kill some of these servants. So what is being presented here? Who are these servants of the man who owns the vineyard? Well, the man's God, his servants are the prophets. And the prophets came in Old Testament times. God sent them over and over and over and over again. And what do the leaders do? Uh, Trickling down to the people as well, they reject them. They abuse them. They even kill some of them. We have records of this in the Old Testament. We go back and we we can give examples of it. So the Lord Jesus is painting a real picture of the history of Israel right up to the point where they're living that they have rejected God's authority, God's word over them, all through their history, and is repeated now, these men are the vine dressers of the current day. Well, what happens? Verse 6, the owner decides he's going to send his one and only son, his beloved son, and they'll listen to my son. Now, who's that a picture of? Obviously, it's the Lord Jesus. He's God's beloved son. So here's the thinking. I still have my only son. He's the heir. He's beloved by me. Uh, he's He's going to represent me, myself. So I'm going to send him. This is kind of a last ditch effort. He's going to give them one more chance. He's being... Uh, he's being loving, he's being kind, he's being merciful, he's being forbearing, and he's going to send his beloved son, thinking they will respect my son. Everybody else is a servant, a slave, but this is my son. And he's the one who should be respected. So, the vine dressers, and again, um, he's thinking it's going to give them one other chance, one more uh, uh, opportunity, and they're going to respect his son. But when he comes, what happens? Those vine dressers, verse 7, said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So for some reason, they're either thinking the owners died, or... Um, uh, he's far away, not going to do anything. So if we kill the heir, if we kill the son, then we get the property and all its produce, which is what they've been trying to do all the while. But this will kind of end the matter. So they plan to kill him. They took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. And that's what's going to happen in just a few days. They're going to take the Lord Jesus and they're going to cast him out of the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to be nailed to a cross, and he's going to die. So they don't want to be under the headship, the leadership, the authority of the owner. 
They want the land, the property for themselves, to do with it as they please, to take the proceeds for themselves. And in a sense, they want to be under their own authority. So when the son arrives, they kill him. All right, so this is the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, and it's his authority that these modern-day rulers are rejecting. They want to be in power. They want the people to do whatever they want to do, and they're supposed to be leading these people in the worship of God, in obedience to his will, uh, but, but they're not really doing that. They don't want to lead the people in this genuine worship and service of God. Their attitude is the same as those Old Testament, or, or as the people that are in this allegory. It's not going to be long before they will take the Lord Jesus outside of the city and they will see that he is crucified. They think that they're succeeding in this when that all happens, but we find they're really dead wrong. In verse 9, we see those who reject Christ's authority will be condemned. Jesus then asks a very pertinent question that we might have put sometime before this. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? We would have expected him to do something long before sending his son, wouldn't we? But now that he sent his son and they killed his son, that's the last straw. What do we expect him to do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. So he's going to come in judgment. He's going to come in justice. He's going to come in righteousness. And he's going to, uh, to take recompense upon those evil, wicked vine dressers. So this depicts the removal of the old regime, uh, the Old Testament, if you will, to make room for the new. The old traditions of the law, the false worship of the land, the hypocrisy of the leadership, the deterioration of faith and worship, that's all got to pass away so the new age of the gospel can be brought in. And the others that are mentioned here, well, that alludes to the church and the bringing in of the Gentiles, which they would totally reject. Uh, They will come into God's salvation as well. And of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus will usher in that new age of grace, the church age. So this great reversal uh, was prophesied of old. And that's another thing that the rulers failed to understand, to comprehend. And Jesus then quotes uh, from this Old Testament scripture in Psalm 118, where he informs them the rejected stone, the son, if you will, the prophets of old, they will, uh, he will become the chief cornerstone. <coughs> Excuse me. Have you not even read this in Scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So that's uh, Psalm 118. Let's go back and take a quick look at that. Psalm 118. 
And we're, we're going to find some parallels to what's going on here uh, in the uh, record of Mark. So Psalm 118, verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. Now what's that alluding to? You remember we have these annual feasts in the in that the people come to Jerusalem. The gates are open so that the people can come through who are wanting to worship the Lord at these annual feasts. And Jesus has come at this period of time when the gates are open to receive the people who are worshiping the Lord uh, during the week of Passover. And then it goes on to say, down in verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now the builders are the leaders, the vine dressers. They have rejected the Lord, but the whole situation is going to be reversed. The stone which they rejected is going to become the chief cornerstone. Now look down at verse 25. Save now... I pray, O Lord. Do you remember what save now means? It's Hosanna. The people cried Hosanna when Jesus came to the city, to the gates. And uh, in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this, uh, this, these are the same things these people are singing as Jesus comes to the gates of Jerusalem. And then in verse um 27, God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Who's going to be that ultimate sacrifice? It's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to be bound to the altar, so to speak, to be God's sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin, the final full sacrifice. And so this is all alluding to what's going to happen in this week of the Lord's life. He is rejected by the builders. Uh, They stumble over that stone. But God makes that stone of stumbling the cornerstone, the foundation of his church. Uh, The rejected stone is about to become the chief cornerstone. That stone is the is the one that makes the foundation strong and secure and straight. It holds together the building uh, so that it will never fall down. So Jesus becomes the cornerstone of the church that will eventually sweep through the world with the gospel of Christ. It's the church that will bring fruit unto God unlike Israel and uh, Uh, She will bow to the authority of her Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ, until he returns. Well, how do you think the rulers responded to this little allegory? They know who Jesus is talking about. They have that much wherewithal. And verse 12, it says, they sought to lay hands on him. So they tried to arrest him at this point in time, but they feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. 
So they understand what Jesus is saying, but they don't want to submit to it. Instead, they want to take him and kill him, just like Jesus said. But because they feared the multitude who still are, are supporting Jesus, they're listening to his teachings, they've heard great things about him, he's been to the temple area a few times before during feast times, so they're not totally uh, unaware of who he is, uh, but they don't want to disturb the crowd and have an issue. What they're going to do is do all this in the secret of the dark of, of the night and uh, the, the people aren't going to be around to do anything until the actual trial takes place. So they left him, and they went away. The Lord's timing has not yet been fulfilled. It's very close. So they're not going to do anything that hasn't been ordained by the Lord, and these dastardly deeds will have to be done under the power of darkness away from the outlooking, uh, onlooking crowds. So... Let's draw a few thoughts from this. First of all, a lesson from Matthew's parallel passage, chapter 21. I'm going to read the 44th verse. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So the stone becomes either your salvation or your condemnation. I think the idea here of the one who falls upon the stone being broken is the one who comes to the Lord with a contrite and broken spirit. They recognize who he is. They know he suffered for their sins. He knows that uh, uh, their hard, self-ruled hearts need to be broken, need to be humbled to come to him in repentance and sin, of sin and faith in his sacrifice. So there's that aspect that the stone becomes the source of your salvation as you're broken upon it. But then conversely, Jesus says, on whomever that stone falls, he will be ground to powder. That's judgment. That's condemnation. If you reject Christ, you'll be crushed by your own sins under the weight of your own condemnation. You'll be lost forever, confined in the fires of hell, and you'll receive the just reward for your unbelief. And then we have an, a lesson here about attitude. Again, the philosophy of our day is to submit to nobody's authority but your own. You call the shots, you're in charge, you make the decisions. doesn't matter what anybody else believes or says. You create your own reality in the day in which we live. Who cares about religion? Who cares about morality? Who cares about God? Who cares about Jesus? Uh, uh, all this is irrelevant to them. I rule my own life. I do my own thing. But if that's the choice one makes, they are doomed, and the stone they reject will eventually crush them for all of eternity. Of course, there's the other choice. That's to believe in Jesus, to accept his authority over you, to receive him as your Lord and Savior, and the results, of course, are eternal in nature that way as well. <clears throat> and, of course, we have a lesson here about submission. If you're truly saved, will you not bow to the authority of Christ in your life? 
Will you still be trying to run your own life? Uh, Will you still be ignoring his commandments and acting like you're not saved until you come to the worship service and then uh, you're a big hypocrite? He has the right to lead your life, to guide you, uh, uh, to increase your understanding, to have you obey his commandments. And he will guide you, he will protect you, he will provide for you. But you need to be submitting to his authority every single day. The message for Christians as well. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning you'll bless your word to our hearts. We're thankful, Lord, that the Lord Jesus stood up for what was true and right and uh, realized that his authority was from God the Father, but he wasn't ready to display that to people who didn't believe it anyways. And we're thankful, Lord, that uh, he was wise to bring out their own hypocrisy and their own disrespect for authority. And we pray, Lord, you help us not to be like that crowd of people, but we as your people would always be submitting to your authority over us. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's not submitted yet to the salvation that you provided for them, help them, Lord, to realize that this is the only hope they have. Otherwise, they'll be crushed by the stone of your condemnation. Bless these things to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.